did want to ask um, Matt Bartlett and um, maybe some others to get a count tonight and give that to me. Bob and Richard, if uh, you could get a count, I'd appreciate it. Um, let me say real quickly, as you're turning to Exodus chapter 32, we, um, uh, I've discovered in ordering books for this study that uh, they are uh, not available until September the 14th to the 29th. And so if you want one still, please fill out one of these cards and place it on the table as you leave tonight. Same card that many of you filled out uh, and used to order books. Uh, if you still want one, let me know. I, with that uh, late date being several weeks behind, I know you might want to reconsider that. But if you do, uh, please order and I will get you a copy. I've got a little bit of a history with uh, baseball and baseballs. Uh, about every Saturday, I'll throw 75 to 100 pitches to a certain 11-year-old uh, who uh, insists on living in my house and eating my food, and uh, we're very happy he does, and uh, we, um, we do that. I played baseball from the time I was seven, uh, starting with a league that um, used a pitching machine and played that for a couple of years and, and well, just went on through until I really topped out my skills in high school someplace. I don't really think I could have gone uh, beyond that. Uh, but uh, I do remember when I was nine years old uh, playing for the Scorpions. You know, we named our Little League teams after insects. Uh, the first year it was the Crickets. Well, that's intimidating. <laughs> but then the second year I was a Scorpion. Now that was good. And we had black uniforms. Yeah, and we eat crickets, yeah. And um, I remember I stole second base and slid in with my face towards home plate. And I slid in, I was safe, and I looked, and here comes the ball. And it sounded like it hit wood. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. No, no opportunity for cheap, cheap humor here. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't open it up. But uh, at that moment, the ball was pretty prominent in my life. But let's say that I take this baseball and place it in my shoe and try to put my foot back in again. That baseball is going to be quite prominent, isn't it? It's going to be obvious. It's going to be very hard to ignore or neglect. In other words, it shapes the relationship of my foot to this shoe. Um, that's a very simple um, illustration uh, that I'd like to use tonight to underscore just how prominent I would like for God's presence to be in my life. Just as I put my foot in this shoe with the baseball in it, you can't ignore it. I would like for God's presence to be that prominent in my life and my walk with Him. I, I do want people to come into my presence, as you do, and experience a fresh encounter with God. And it's entirely possible to do that. Moses, when he came off the mount, had to have his face covered because the glory of God radiated from him so intensely. They couldn't stand to look at him. And I've never known anyone since except Jesus that had that same effect upon others. George Truett used to say that Jesus can be and should be the closest person to us. That is entirely possible. It is entirely possible to walk with God as you would walk with a person. And not just any person, but the most exalted and the one who wants to be your father. Israel threatened that in Exodus chapter 
32. In fact, the next chapter in the chapter division here is disruptive uh, here of the story. It's one story from chapter 32 through 34. But God announces the problem in verse uh, 3 of chapter 33 and says, You can go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. After they sinned with the golden calf, God did promise them that he would provide for them, protect them, and deliver them into the promised land, but he would not go with them. He would provide, he would give them his provision, but he would not give them his presence. And I do fear just a little bit that there are many that may be in the same circumstance, uh, even in this day. God has provided for them. They've come to Jesus Christ as Savior, but there is no evidence of the presence of God in their life. There's nothing that has changed. Uh, Tom Eliff said, The believer's responsibility is to glorify God, and this means that we're simply to be in such a position before God that our lives serve as a platform for His majestic presence. And he goes on to caution readers, saying, Perhaps there was a time when you magnify the Lord. In other words, the Lord somehow looked bigger as seen through your life. But now, you may sense that the glory is gone. Others can spend hours with you and never sense the presence of God. Your own fellowship with God is strained and difficult. You look upon the past as the glory days of your life. As with the children of Israel, such a loss of God's presence calls for sober reflection and serious response. And we're going to do that tonight. My pastor used to warn us, and it wasn't the most gentle statement that we ever heard, but if the, he would say, if there's ever been a time when you've been closer to Jesus than you are now, and right now you're backslidden. And then he would oftentimes quote, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day I know him, I love him more and more. And Jesus saves and keeps me, and he's the one I'm living for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. There is something of that. Now, that's not to discount the reality that we go through trials and valleys and we don't feel very good about it. I will tell you, being close to him doesn't always have to uh, be accompanied by close, intense feelings. Uh, you can still be close to him. You can go through a trial. You may have some difficulty and struggle and things not be wrong. In fact, it may be entirely right. But if you go years and decades that way, we need some changes. We've got to have some changes. And this comes to the fore in Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Now, the, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that, we shall, that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, uh, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what became of him. And Aaron said to them, Well, break off the gold earrings which are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molten calf or golden calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, 
uh, tomorrow's the feast of the Lord. You know, I got real spiritual about all this. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now on the other end, something else is going on with Moses and the Lord. And it says in verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone and let that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. A couple of things about God's glory and His presence. One, when the glory of God's presence comes, things should change. When we initially receive Jesus Christ, His God's glory comes with Him, and we should experience some change in life. And the book of 1 John will outline that. Uh, God, the glory of God's presence changes ownership. We start owning our own sin. We say we have no sin, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. In 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Then the glory of God's presence changes lordship. By this we know that we've come to know him, verses uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 2 say. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Then the glory of God's presence changes scholarship. 1 John 2, 20 through 21, and uh, verse number 27 say that we have an anointing and have no need for someone to teach us because the anointing abides on us. The Holy Spirit teaches the Word to people who um, uh, know Jesus Christ as Savior. So there should be a burgeoning hunger and a growing knowledge of the Word of God in the child of God. And that is uh, indicative of the presence of God in salvation. Then the glory of God's presence changes fellowship. By this we know that uh, we have passed from death to life. If we love the brethren, uh, 1 John 3, 14 to 15, when we're really saved and we have the glory of God in His presence in us, then we love His church. We have a heart for the people of God, just like Jesus does. And then the glory of God's presence changes dictatorship. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5 uh, say, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And who is He who... Uh, overcomes the world, yet him, uh, him who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so trust in Christ for salvation <coughs> brings the glory of God's presence, which leads to victory over the world, and we dictate our own behavior. The world does not. Now, there are occasions of failure, but the, the development and growth in the Christian life uh, is not always a straight line upward. In fact, it rarely is. But it is a line upward that's got some peaks and valleys in it. But over the years and decades, you can discern a graph that's on its way up. And that is what it's like to know Christ as Savior. God's glorious presence comes into the life and changes everything. And if you're struggling with that, please get it settled very soon. This is too important a question to neglect or be presumptive about. You're not promised tomorrow. You need to make sure that you know that you know that you know Christ as Savior and Lord. So when the glory of God's presence comes, things should change. But second, when the glory of God's presence departs, things must change. They've got to change. And this is what's outlined here in the text for us. 
And there are several reasons why God's presence departed here, and they indicate the need for some change. First, rejecting God's Word. Israel rejected the explicit Word of God in the Ten Commandments. and may have done it in one of two ways, probably both ways. It says in verses 7 and 8, The Lord complained that they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Now, there are a couple of uh, commandments here, the first two in the Ten Commandments that they probably violated here, and I think the text indicates they violated both. One, you shall have no other gods before me. But then there's something a little more subtle, and that's the second commandment. That's worshiping a graven image, worshiping the true God with a graven image. And that's why I'm always a little nervous about crosses on churches and buildings. I'm not entirely against them, but you've got to be extremely careful that they don't stir devotion and warm feelings in your heart because you get very, very close to veneration of those things. You've got to be extremely careful. I remember one church when I was an interim pastor, when I worked with the Georgia Baptist Convention, uh, he uh, really didn't like the screens and didn't like words projected on them and would find every opportunity to criticize everything about the music program at the church. Well, the church, I led them through a process to decide what they were going to do. The church didn't think that was a priority. And to his credit, Mel just stopped saying anything. He was uh, very strong, committed to congregational government, and the congregation didn't agree with him, so he let it go. Isn't that a miracle? But uh, that's, what, that's what he did. Uh, that might be nice to happen in families and businesses and neighborhoods. Uh, along with churches. But in any case, uh, that's what Mel did. He let it go to his credit, but one Sunday he said something that bordered on the violation of the second commandment. He uh, didn't like the screens because they, 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 it appeared over the baptistry and covered up the cross in the baptistry. And he said, I, I, I mean, look at that. We're covering the cross of Jesus. Please. <laughs> that is a cheap piece of wood out of a warehouse in Lebanon, Tennessee, that Lifeway produced and ordered from China. That is not the cross of Jesus. Good gr- and and he, he was there venerating it. And I really fear, I'm very, very worried that he violated the second commandment. That's why historically, uh, Baptists and secondarily Presbyterians have not had any symbols in their churches. Now, you've got to be careful there. Pictures and stained glass and crosses and these kinds of things, if they stir devotion, if they stir devotion... You've got to watch your heart. You could cross the line in the violation of the second commandment. Got to be extremely careful with that. Well, that may be what Israel had done here. They identified the true God, but were using a graven image to prop up their worship. Got to be very, very careful with that. Um, There are a couple ways that this evidences itself in the text. Um, One, um, they were somewhat experimental in their walk and worship and devotion with God. Uh, And that is, the Lord complains in verse 7, they've turned aside quickly. They had not committed themselves over the long haul to follow this God. They were still trying to make up their minds. They would try it, and then they would back off. There are some that are just like that. Um, The Christian life is experimental. They'll try it for a few days, or a few weeks, or a few months, But if their circumstances don't improve, they bail out and quickly turn aside to something else because there are other alternatives out there. And so they merely experiment with the walk. But then, this is also an encouraged life. You see Aaron's prominent role in this. You've got Aaron saying to them in verse 2, break off the golden earrings. And then verse 5, when Aaron saw, saw it, he built an altar before the idol. 
And then, I don't know if he has a twinge of guilt here, but he tries to shift gears and improve the idolatrous situation by calling a feast of the Lord and mixing true worship with false worship. So he gets kind of spiritual about it, about his disobedience to God, is what takes place in the text. Um, The children of Israel, in their disobedience, received quick encouragement from Aaron. And any time people get outside the will of God, there's always an authority figure, even a religious authority figure, seeking to confirm them for their disobedience to God. There's always someone in a position of authority somewhere who is taken seriously, who will tell the people precisely what they want to hear, even if they're in disobedience. They're just like Aaron, and they are encouraged in that way. One author said, you will always run into people who will tell you that everything you want to do is exactly what you ought to do. This high-sounding rationalization of their corrupt activities was all the children of Israel needed. They begin labeling those who clearly espouse the high standards of God as Pharisees, living by the letter instead of the spirit of the law. And sometimes there are people just like that. They seek out an authority figure, even a religious authority figure, to confirm for them in doing what they've already decided to do. And that's what happened here in Israel. And Aaron wasn't just anybody from the nation of Israel, was he? You remember his role? Moses would hear from God and whisper to Aaron, and Aaron was Moses' what? Spokesman. And so it was Aaron who initially verbally announced the Ten Commandments on one hand, and on the other hand, he's the one that participated in this. And so you see the confusion that can happen. Well, it's got to be okay if Aaron says it's okay. There's no way he would violate the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. There's always an authority figure who will confirm folks in their departure from God. Now, there's one man who came to his pastor one day and said, Pastor, I'm really tormented in my heart. I don't even know if I'm saved. And the pastor listened to him, and he shared his testimony, and he uh, articulated a biblically defined conversion story. And the pastor listened to him for a while, and he said, You know, You know, I I can't judge your heart. You have to evaluate it. Only the Holy Spirit can give you assurance in the Scripture if you trust the Lord uh, in His Word and what He promises. But usually what I have found is that someone who is saved and has a kind of testimony like you really is saved, but he's got something in his life where he's drifted from God and he he hasn't fixed it and dealt with it. What I want you to do is I want you to get before God, get honest with God, and completely surrender to Him and ask Him to show you what, what, what's wrong. Well, the guy did, and he called back the next day. He said, Pastor, I know exactly what it is. I know exactly what it is. I am not experiencing God's presence anymore like I used to, even though I'm saved because several months ago I quit tithing. I just made a decision I would not do it. And I left that behind, and since then, I have not experienced the presence of God. I've made a commitment to do it, and I just surrendered right before calling you, and I've got a fresh rush of the presence of God. Listen, whenever we disobey God and don't immediately repent, God replaces His presence with conviction and begins to deal with us. And He begins to, as Spurgeon said, persecute our careless souls into anxiety until he gets our attention. 
I appreciate the fact that that's about as far as he often goes. He'll go further if necessary. But the truth is, is that he will work with the soul and bother it and upset it until he gets our attention. Now, Lord oftentimes does something similar with me right before he speaks to me and wants to give me some direction. And what I usually do is I try to follow Samuel's example of when he was a boy. And that is, I say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens and just surrender to him. And sometimes I've had to get some things right. Other times I've had to change direction. But the point here is, is that Israel had rejected the word of God and God replaced his glory and presence with conviction. So the challenge for us is to accept scripture as God's word and obey it. So they rejected God's word. The second, they reduced God's worship. Verse number eight, they made themselves a molded calf, a molded calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it. And so now Israel has a God who's no bigger than their imagination. He's reduced in a box. He really isn't, but mentally that's what can happen. The thing that we've got to watch for is for something to take precedence over God. Something besides Him to become the controlling factor of who we are. Something else getting our greatest attention, greatest time, our greatest resources, our greatest love. I know of uh, one preacher who was preaching a revival at a church. And right before the service starts, the pastor comes and rushes in and sits down out of breath. And he looks at the guest preacher and says, man, I sure hated to turn the television off during the last 10 minutes of the football game. But I'd already stayed home longer than I should have. I was almost late to church. May I say to you, whenever you have a revival meeting, there are demonic forces breaking loose all over the place. You don't have time to watch a football game. Not against that. But before a revival service, every heart's got to be hot after God. And rushing in just moments before, after the world is on your mind, after multiplied godless beer commercials, that's the last thing you need 30 minutes or an hour before a revival meeting. What you need to do is gather the people of God and set your heart so much on Him that you seek His face and you weep and you let your heart break that God would move amongst the people. When someone has an affection for something like that and hates to turn off the television, because they have to go to a revival meeting or some other church event, I don't think it's likely God's going to share His glory with that person. Because worship of God has been reduced. Now this can be very, very subtle. Oh, it can be very subtle. That's kind of an obvious example. But look what the Indian uh, Christian, Bak Singh, said. He said, the indigenous churches in India have a great burden for America just now and are praying that God will visit your country with revival. In our churches, we spend four or five or six hours in prayer and worship. And frequently, our people wait on the Lord in prayer all night. But in America, after you've been in church for one hour, you begin to look at your watches. To attract people to meetings, you have a great dependence on posters, advertising, promotion, and buildup of a human being. And that's to the church people. In India, we have nothing more than the Lord Himself, and we find that He is sufficient. Before a Christian meeting in India, we never announce who the speaker will be. When people come, they come to seek the Lord and not a human being or to hear some special favorite speaking to them. We have had as many as 23,000 people come together just to worship the Lord and have fellowship with one another. And we're praying that the people in America might also come to church with a hunger for God and not merely a hunger to see some form of amusement or hear choirs or the voice of any man. 
Do you know how much time church staffs across America labor and how many resources they expend not to get lost people to the church, but just to get the Christian people there? Apparently, Calvary and an empty tomb and the salvation experience and the fact that the people of God are meeting isn't enough for most church people. We have reduced worship. It's no longer enough that Jesus will be present. We've got to answer the question, who's speaking and what will we be doing in that time together? God help us that Jesus isn't enough. We've reduced worship. But then, reassigning God's work. Chapter 32, verse 8. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're pointing to the golden calf, the molden the molded calf. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They, they attributed the exodus to this golden calf when it was God who did it. It's like one fellow that asked the pastor to pray for him about a solution to a problem. He was afraid there were some uh, customers who were taking advantage of his business financially, and he wanted some direction on how to deal with it. So uh, he did, took care of it, and reported back to the pastor. And here is subtly how he replied and explained what happened. He said, I've been praying. One morning, I woke up with a great idea. I called those guys together, and I set them straight. I don't know why I didn't think of this idea earlier. They were so frightened by what I said that they immediately set out to settle their accounts with me. Now, do you see a theme here in this statement? I prayed, but then I did this. I, it was my boldness. It was my idea. It was my articulation of demands. And they responded to me. How likely is it that God is going to share his glory with such a person? How about simply saying, God came through and moved powerfully. I, I cried out to him, and according to the promises of his word, God came through. I, I dare say, if God had intervened, the, the accounts would have been settled no matter what this man had said. But God came through, but the man took glory for himself. Hey, this is very subtle. By the way, when we take glory for ourselves, we'll never admit it. We'll, we'll never announce, I took glory for myself. And in fact, it's entirely possible that we'll not even realize that we've done this. This is such a subtle, subtle Thing. So God is not disposed to grant his glory to those who redirect his glory to something or someone other than uh, himself. If God is to radiate his glory to us, we've got to set our hearts on showing people that God is so much bigger and so much clever and so much wiser than us that we are small and he is big and we, we are foolish and he is wise and we are weak and he is strong. So we give credit where credit is due, even if we've got to strain and think differently about glory and giving credit. That was the problem Israel had here. They reassigned God's work. And then finally, they resisted God's will. Exodus 32, verse 9. I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. When people came to thrones in the ancient world, and even in many places today, they were to bow their head in reverence and homage to the king. If they were resistant, 
you could take your hand and put it on the back of their head and begin to try to force them to bow, and they'd be stiff-necked. They wouldn't do it. They'd hold their neck up and resist, bowing and surrendering. So it's a metaphor, it's an image of resistance to surrender. Resisting the will of the king. Being stiff-necked before God is the opposite of being meek. Now, Jesus said something really ironic. He said that that you would never expect anyone to ever say. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, the last people in the world you'd ever expect to inherit the earth are the meek. But if you think about it, it really makes sense. The New Testament uh, Greek word meek was a word that was used on occasion in the ancient world for a horse that had been broken and trained. And so Jesus says, blessed is the person who's broken and disciplined enough to be trained and to respond to direction of the rider in many ways. We could expand it to understand it that way. Someone that's broken and trained that will obey instructions. Blessed are God blesses the meek, the broken, those who are teachable, they are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. It's the exact opposite of being stiff-necked before God. A, an untrained, an unbroken horse has power and energy and may be physically a remarkable specimen of a horse. But without being broken and trained, such a horse is useless. In order for us to be useful as a platform for the glory of God, we've got to be broken and trained entirely teachable. Some people are shown God's will and they respond in a stiff-necked fashion. Some God has called to ministry and they haven't surrendered. Some God has directed them in a certain path of life and they've not said yes. Some God has prompted to go across the street right then and witness to a neighbor. Some God has directed to teach a class or take up a ministry. Some God has directed to give a specific amount of money or time. Some God has prompted to avoid a romantic relationship or reconcile another relationship. If we want to be platforms for the majestic glory of God, then we do God's will and leave all the questions and arrangements to Him. He's far better capable of handling them than us. Now, as you look towards that kind of life, walking in the presence and the glory of God, I want you to remember that God has already set up and set the stage and given you the frame of mind, if if you'll remember it, to do so. You can anticipate your future, where God will take you, by examining much of your past. You have enough past walk and experience with God to trust Him for the future. Because your past not only goes back to your date of birth, your past goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And your past picks up power and picks up uh, an extended purpose in the death of Jesus Christ. There's your past. And, and your past uh, grows even more intense and more vivid in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
is what happens. The God who is leading you in the future is the God who has already provided for your past. And you're going to face need and you're going to face challenge. But when you face need and challenge, as Manly Beasley said, a need is the evidence that God is already prepared to meet that need or you wouldn't have a need. God is never caught up short. Every need you will face in the future, God has already arranged circumstances and resources to take care of that need. The important thing to do then is to get in on what God wants to do with your life. That's where you start. That's where you start. Get in on what God wants to do with your life. And so towards that, I want us to take a few moments to do a little examination in prayer. Would you join me in prayer, please? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Would you ask God to kindly and gently show you tonight if you have drifted from his glory and how it is that you did that? Perhaps you're Walk with God is full of a radiant glory now, and it may not be um, very relevant to where you are right now. It won't hurt you to pray that either. Otherwise, it's going to help powerfully just to get humble before God and ask Him to search you and try you, expose your anxious thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in you, and lead you in an everlasting way. Use your own words, but would you ask him to do that for you? Now take that thing that you're thinking about and give it to him. Or it may be several things. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be shaken. Casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Now, finally, if Jesus is your Lord, surrender to him. Use your own words but surrender to his will and his word and ask him to make you a platform on which he can radiate his glory. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. Now, why don't you tell him just how badly you want to come back to him? And if you've not drifted, how much more of his glory and presence you want? He wants to hear that.
Oh, blessed God, we praise you for hearing us. And thank you that it's even possible for us to realistically, without any exaggeration, without making more of all of this than we have to, we can actually contemplate walking with God in his presence. And that is real. We pray, O oh God, that you would shape us into the kind of people that are a platform for your majesty. We do pray that your presence would be exceptionally prominent in us. Whether privately or anywhere two or three are gathered or more. And Lord, whatever hindrances are in the way, help us to deal ruthlessly with those until in an appropriate way we've removed them. But God, I want to know you more. And Lord, I've been looking into your word for a long, long time. And I've been walking with your people and some of the greatest people for a long time. And still, I want more. I don't have enough. My heart is not satisfied with all the things I've acquired in my soul yet. So I plead with you. Would you give us all more? And lead us gently like a sh shepherd in your way. And make us a different people. Help us to approach all of this by grace. And we thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we dismiss, uh, I want to say thank you to our kids for being here tonight. Uh, they have come in from Children's Choir. They do that the last uh, Wednesday night of the uh, month. We give their workers something of a break. But uh, if you're here tonight and you're one of our uh, kids in choir, let me make a couple of recommendations to you. I'm speaking to our kids in choir for a moment. Uh, tonight or tomorrow, I want you to talk about four things with your parents. And I think you can remember these. These won't be terribly difficult. But about tonight's message. Number one, is there anything that made you... Well, first, what did the pastor say tonight? Try to summarize that. Just whatever you remember. Number two, is there anything that made you happy in what you heard tonight? Okay. Number two, any... Number three, anything that made you sad? Okay. Is there any saddening part of it? Well, there were some. And number four, what should we do with it? Okay? What did he say? Anything make you happy? Anything make you sad? What should we do with it? Okay? You'll do that. I think you may be able to teach your parents something. And God bless you tonight. Have a good evening. We love you. Oh, and don't forget, if you want a book, fill it out. Leave it on the table. <laughs>